Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, this is uh, the third class uh, in this uh, uh, series on navigating the employer-employee relationship with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. Uh, in this series, we explore a number of topics that address the nature of the employer-employee relationship, highlighting the rights and responsibilities of both sides. As always here at Risha, we encourage uh, everyone to turn on their video if they're able to, so we can kind of feel like we're together in a class. Uh, also, you can feel free to ask questions uh, by either writing them as a comment uh, here on Zoom, or you can unmute yourself if you're with us. Uh, if you're watching us live on Facebook, you can write it as a comment there. And <coughs> Uh, present uh, the questions to Rabbi Zering. And with that, I'll turn this to you, uh, Rabbi Zering. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Evie. Um, so thank you everyone for, for coming. Good afternoon or good evening or wherever you are. Um, so, so the first two weeks of the course, so we spend one week focusing primarily on the relationships of the, uh, the responsibilities rather of the employee. And that was week one where we dealt with time management and uh, taking on multiple employment. Um, and last week, we took a topic which focused on the responsibilities of the employer, focusing on the question of, of paying on time. Um, and this week, we are going to turn to a topic that, that uh, deals with the negotiation between these two parties on um, the issue of, of unionization and, uh, and striking. Um, which was a, a very heated topic in the in the last, let's say, 100 years and a little bit uh, of PSOC, um, as some of these issues were being worked out um, in the general world um, as well. Um, and just for, for people who are with us, so again, as Evie mentioned next week, we won't have because of Purim, um, but in the next three classes, um, so the fourth week, we'll be dealing with uh, with the parameters of when, when um, one can quit, how one can quit, um, uh, and the like. Um, and then in the last two weeks, we're going to deal with slightly different topics with um, the responsibilities of employers and employees when people working with them are, uh, are violating um, various halachic or ethical um, issues, um, dealing with, um, with how you deal with unethical bosses, unethical employees, whistleblowing, um, and those are the last uh, two weeks of the course. So that's just to, uh, to see where we're going. Um, but as I said, today, what we're dealing with after a week of focusing on the employer and a week focusing on the employee, now we're going to talk a little bit of how, of how you uh, negotiate it. Um, so um, as I put here in the introduction, there's a nice summary of some of these issues um, in the uh, in um, Dr. David Schnall's book, um, By the Sweat of Your Brow, um, in Chapter 7, Look for the Union Label, um, which is a nice overview. And some of the more complicated um, treatments um, we'll see. Um, specifically an excellent treatment from Benny Brown that I include in the, in the body of the, of the share. Um, okay, so before we get to, to unions itself and, and strikes itself, um, as, uh, as Dr. Schnall points out in his chapter on the topic, um, unions, unionization, striking, um, and the like, these aren't usually introduced into an employer-employee uh, a relationship for no reason. Um, the reason it's there is because um, employee, usually employees want to protect themselves. Usually the employer has more power, um, at least than the individual uh, employee. But the employees en masse, um, if they join together and they make demands, so often that gives them power that the uh, that the that any individual employee would not have. Now, Dr. Schnall points out that um, even before we get to this negotiation, 
Um, it's clear that some of the mitzvot that we've talked about in the last few weeks um, and some that we'll talk about in the coming weeks um, highlight the rights of the employees uh, to have their employers treat them well and respect them. Um, so even before we get to the specific question of unionization, the idea that employees have rights um, from their employers um, and that the Torah allows them to demand those rights, uh, that's clear. So the question of what tool they use, um, which is the question of, of unionization, um, is fascinating. But in the background, you have to remember that the idea that employees have rights is really implicit in, in many different sukkim and many, many different um, commandments and halakhic issues. Uh, so for example, he just throws out a few. Um, one, and this is going to be the focus of next week, um, is the Torah tells us that you have to treat um, Jews who are um, properly, um, even when they're in your employ, even if they're slaves, um, because really they're the slaves or the servants of God um, before they are the servants of, uh, of man. And as we'll see next week, um, that principle drives the Gemara to argue that a uh, employee always has the right to uh, to quit in the middle of the day, to back out of a job, um, because to not give a uh, an employee the right to back out of a job would be to make him a slave um, or make her a slave. Um, and the Torah doesn't want um, people, especially people who are not slaves, and slavery itself is problematic, um, but definitely people who are simply employees to be treated as slaves is problematic, and therefore the Torah goes out of its way uh, to prevent that. Um, another law that he puts in um, as an example of employees' rights um, and the sensitivities that an employer has to have to his workers um, is in number two. That when, uh, when an agricultural worker is, is working in the field, so the Torah grants him the right to eat while he's working. He can't save it. He can't take the grapes. He can't take the uh, oranges and apples and put them in a basket um, and take them home with him. Um, but on the job, he's allowed to eat as much uh, as he wants, which is again, a recognition of the fact that the employee the employee here is working out in the field. It's, it's hot, it's hard work. Um, it's, you know, it's cruel to sort of dangle fresh fruit right off the, right off the, the tree in front of this employee and not let them um, partake of it. And the Torah says, you have to let them, you have to let them eat. Whatever exactly is behind it, this idea of this, uh, this sensitivity um, and of course, in number three, the prohibitions, uh, three and four, the prohibitions of, uh, of delaying payment, as we talked about in the first week, again, highlight the rights um, of, the, uh, of the employee. Um, okay, so that's sort of in the, the background. Um, but let's turn to the specific issue of, uh, of unions. So um, while, as we'll see soon, the principles upon which unionization halacha are based um, go all the way back to the, the Gemara, uh, really for, really past that to the Tosefta. Um, the discussion of unions in halacha as such is a pretty modern, um, a pretty modern discussion. Um, and this excellent article by, uh, by Benny Brown called, um, here you have it in five, Trained Union Strikes and the Renewal of Halachic Labor Law ideologies and the rulings of Rabbis Cook, Uziel, and Feinstein. Um, he gives the background to why it is that in the 20th century, um, halachic authorities started discussing 
um, the questions of unions as such. So he writes, the intellectual historical background, um, the models of regulation of labor relations in modern ideology, uh, ideologies. In the traditional legal approach of pre-modern times, labor laws were a non-central part of the laws of contracts. More precisely, they were part of rental laws. In this framework, the concept strike was non-existent. The worker was hired, i.e. rented, for a job, and if he unilaterally stopped working, he was considered to be in breach of the contract. However, during the 19th century and early 20th century, in most Western countries, important changes occurred in this area of law, which anchored the rights of employees and employers in legislation. Labor law now became an independent branch of law. One of the most prominent changes was the creation of mechanisms <clears throat> for regulating labor relations through free associations representing employees and employers. Likewise, these laws recognize the right to strike as a legitimate means to deal with the workers' struggle for the rights and no longer construed strikes to be simply a breach of contract. These changes, um, okay, I think I just added an extra sentence there um, and cut it off, um, but Brown's fundamental point, and we mentioned this a little bit last week, um, is that What's new in the modern period um, is that general thinkers, legal thinkers, philosophers, and the like start, con start to conceptualize um, labor relations between employers and employees as a uh, unique area of, uh, of law. And therefore, Poskim, who are writing, halachic authorities who are writing in this period, um, start to struggle with the same questions, um, and two related questions that were raised in general society and therefore halacha had to respond to was, again, the question of um, unionization, um, namely the idea that employees should um, negotiate collectively. Um, and the second is specifically the tool that was often used by unions, which was striking, where collectively the employees would stop working um, in order to pressure their employer into whatever it might be, to give them higher salaries, um, or in the earlier um, strikes to provide safe working conditions um, and the like. And therefore halacha um, had to respond to these two, uh, to these two new realities um, in, with the backdrop of, uh, of labor relations constituting a, um, a standalone um, category of law, okay? So that's sort of the background that we need to have um, in mind when we, um, when we enter this, this topic, is that it's really coming on the backdrop of a, a universal conversation about um, labor relations as a unique category of halacha, okay? Um, so that's the background. Um, now, he notes that there were several overarching theories that emerged um, to explain the ideal way of dealing with, uh, with labor relations. So if, he continues, um, communism was one. Uh, communism would not settle for the enactment of labor laws to regulate relations between employers and employees, but demanded the total abolition of these classes and the creation of a classless society. This society was to be achieved through the nationalization of the means of production, entailing the transformation of all citizens, or as many of them as were able, to employees of the state. In such a state, we're all were workers, and the workers were also the bosses. There could be no conflict with employers, and there would be no need and no room to secure the right to strike. Right. So one 
um, reality or one ideology that emerged to explain the proper relationship of employers and employees was basically to get rid of the notion. Um, and communism basically said, look, everyone works for the state um, because the entire model of employers and employees um, is problematic. Um, and in that idealized world, so then there would be no need for unionization, there would need no room for, for striking um, because um, right, there would be no employees um, and employers. However, um, two other ideologies that emerged um, did maintain the idea of employment. Um, and as such, they had to respond to um, the reality of employer relationships. And those are the two, the two ideologies he identifies are what he calls liberalism and fascism. Um, he said, as he puts it here, the liberal position proclaimed that the solution to the plight of the worker lay in the free unionization of workers apart from employers while anchoring the laws of the workers' right to strike and protest. Thus, it opened the arena to regulated power struggles between the two sides. In this model, the competing strengths of the parties enable the parties to engage in collective bargaining, at the end of which the representative, the respective sides will reach binding settlements, collective agreements. Fascism, however, saw the two previously mentioned models as representative of the position promoting discord in the fabric of societal relationships and stated that such an approach is unacceptable. Its thinkers proposed an organic approach seeking harmony between the various forces in society. This harmony can only be achieved through the intervention of a third party in the relationship between the employee and the employer, and, and the employer, i.e., the state. So, what we have here in the background again is essentially four models of how to view the proper relationship between employers and employers. Uh, we have the communist model, which is get rid of the reality of employers and employees. You have what he calls the liberal model which is that everyone has the right to stand on their rights. And therefore, um, we should encourage employers to stand on their rights and employees to stand on their rights. And each side should have the power to, um, to strengthen their side as much as possible. So that means that it's the right of employers to collectively bargain and use whatever means at their disposal, such as striking, uh, to get their side um, to get as much as they need, they want. Um, you have uh, fascism, which believed that there are employees, there are employers, but the state has to be sort of the third party arbiter. And then there was the fourth model, which, as he said, was rejected by this point in history, which was that employer-employee relationships are nothing more than contract law, and therefore it shouldn't be addressed um, distinctly. Um, but as we said, in halacha, um, that fourth model um, falls by the wayside as that isn't the reality people are facing. Um, the communist model um, also doesn't really find favor in halacha because halacha recognizes the reality of employers and employees. But um, the other two models, the quote unquote liberal model, the idea that everyone has the right to negotiate um, with as much power as they can muster for their side in this, you know, in this relationship of various powers and the quote unquote fascist model, right? The idea that there are employees and there are employers, but um, a third party has to come in and negotiate their rights, 
both of those models, as we'll see, uh, do have manifestations in, in halacha. Okay, so that's sort of the, the uh, 15 minute background to why it is that in the 19th century and 20th century, people start asking these questions and the ideological background um, for the models that are going to be uh, suggested by the, the postgame. Okay, um, are there any questions before we see the sources? I know that's a bit of a longer introduction, but um, we, we sort of had to sort of at least get the, the general ideologies, philosophies, um, changes in the world on the ground. So any questions, any thoughts before we get into the halachic sources? Okay, so let's uh, let's launch into it. So does halacha believe in collective negotiations, right? Which is really the background to unionization. So the short answer seems to be yes. If you look at number six, the Gemara in Bavabatra, Davzayin, Abed, and 7b, uh, in the context of uh, communal responsibilities uh, and neighborly responsibilities, um, we'll read this in English, but the Mishnah says, the residents of a courtyard can compel each inhabitant of that courtyard to financially participate in the building of a gatehouse and a door to the jointly, jointly owned courtyard. Rushiman ben Gamliel disagrees and says, not all courtyards require a gatehouse and each courtyard must be considered on its own accords with its specific needs, right? So the background here is that we're talking about um, cases of, again, neighborly negotiations, um, people who live together, how do they relate to each other? How do they negotiate? What can they coerce each other to do? Um, and that's the background of the, um, of the topic. In number seven, the Gemara takes this farther and says, V'rasha'in b'nei ha'ir lahatnot al hamidot v'alasha'arim <laughs> Not only is it permitted for neighbors to, let's say, force each other to, um, to set up security for their, uh, let's say, apartment building, it's permitted for residents of the city to set the measures used in that city, the prices, and the wages paid to its workers, and to fine people for violating their specifications, right? So suddenly we see that um, not only is there this idea of um, negotiating rights as neighbors or as members of a city, but this spills over into uh, employment uh, as well. Um, and the members of a city, and as the Gemara goes on to explain specifically, um, members of a particular uh, guild, a particular um, craft, a particular um, type of worker, they can get together and they can set pr prices, they can set rules that everybody is bound to. Um, and in number eight, the Gemara adds that not only do they have the right to, to set um, standardized prices within a certain profession, um, anyone who violates the standard set out can be um, held accountable. So the Gemara says that Hanu be tre tabache. So there were two butchers who made an agreement with each other that whichever one of them worked on the day assigned to the other, <clears throat> according to their mutually agreed upon schedule, would tear up the hide of the animal that he slaughtered that day. Right? So they divided up the days. You work on Sunday. I work on Monday. And if anyone violated that agreement, so they would lose the hide of the animal that they slaughtered, right? It's punishment. 
one of them went and worked on the other's day, and the other butcher tore up the hide of the animal that, that he slaughtered. They came before Rava for judgment, and Rava obligated him to pay the butcher who slaughtered that animal. Ravyemar Bar Shlamya raised an objection to Rava. Isn't it stated among actions that the residents of a city may take and to fine people for violating their specifications, i.e., those ordinances that the residents passed? Right. So, so Ravyemar said to Rava, Rava, you seem to deny the fact that there can be consequences to violating these um, agreed upon norms. But didn't we say you're allowed to do that? Rava didn't bother answering. But the Gemara then says, Rapapa said he did well that he did not respond to him. As this matter applies only where there is no important person in the city, in which case it is permitted for the residents of the city to draw up ordinances on their own. But where there is an important person, it is not in the resident's power to make stipulations, i.e. regulations. Rather, they are required to obtain the approval of the city's leading authority to give force to their regulations. Okay? So um, here are the two key passages in the Gemara, right? The line on Davchet, which says that members of a particular guild, members of a city, are allowed to set rules for everyone um, in that profession prices, what days you're allowed to work on, and can, they can even have consequences and punishments for those who violate the collective norms. And the second piece is that um, if there is a great person, an important person in the city, he needs to give his stamp of approval to these ordinances. Otherwise, the, uh, the punishment, the consequences are not binding. Okay, those are the two key lines to understand our topic. So with just those two, li two lines, what would you say? Um, does halacha recognize the ability to unionize? Um, are there limitations on it? Um, who has to weigh in on the proper parameters of the deals that they make? Right? What do you get just from these two key lines? Then I will continue. Okay. Um, so what the what the post can really grapple is, with here is the following. Right. On the one hand, the Gemara clearly believes that employees members of a particular profession are allowed to um, make deals with each other, set certain um, standards for their uh, employment, for the prices they charge, for the, the way they work, the hours they work, right? That's clear. Um, and therefore the Gemara clearly does uh, set a model for unionization in the sense that um, unionization is a type of Right, collective agreement where the, right, let's say all the, whatever it might be, right, all the people working in a particular factory, all the people working um, in a particular profession get together and they say, um, in the modern context, we aren't going to allow ourselves to uh, be forced to work more than, I don't know, nine hour days, or we are not going to allow anyone to work in unsafe conditions, because if we do that, then um, employers will be able to force all of us to work in unsafe conditions, or we will not allow anyone to accept um, any salary less than a $15 an hour, whatever, minimum wage, living wage, whatever you want to call it, $20 an hour, whatever it might be. Because if any of us do that, so then um, we're weakening our collective power. And as you see in the Gemara, it's legitimate for people to say, listen, you work only on Mondays, I work on Tuesdays. Um, and if you don't do that, you're weakening us collectively. 
you're allowed to say we're all going to charge the same price. <clears throat> so on the one hand, the idea that at some level, halacha recognizes the ability of um, people to get together, to collectively bargain, to make um, rules that everyone in their profession has to follow to the betterment of all of their place in society, um, that is clearly recognized. On the other hand, the limitation of Adam Chashuv, of the important person, whatever it means, clearly says that they don't have complete power, right? There's some limitation on um, how far mere negotiations and mere agreement um, can go. And therefore, there are times when, um, right, we can all agree that I work on Sunday, you work on Monday, he works on Tuesday. But if there is an important person um, and he says, you know what, I don't like that. I don't agree with those negotiations. There's something unfair about it. Um, I don't like what you said. I don't like the consequences you put in uh, in place for violating the agreement. Um, he's allowed to override it or they're null and void to begin with. Um, and therefore, there is some sort of limitation on um, the ability of, of workers to negotiate freely. Right? So those are the, sort of the two pieces of information that everybody is, uh, is dealing with. Um, I'm going to run through some of the, uh, the sources um, here to get to the modern. Um, now, where does this power even come from? Why is it that, that you're allowed to uh, negotiate amongst yourself and even have consequences um, imposed on someone who violates the collective norm? Uh, so the clarifies that it comes from Hefker baked in Hefker, um, from the general power of the courts to, um, to deal and control monetary issues. Um, now, the Me'iri puts a significant limitation on this collective bargaining tool. Um, and he notes that, let's say, um, the collective agreement of all the carpenters in society uh, didn't affect everyone else in society, right? They all agree that, I don't know, they're all going to use mahogany for uh, for all furniture that they build because they've decided it's the only safe one. Um, I don't know. Um, and it doesn't really affect the price and it doesn't I, come up with every case you want. So then they're allowed to do that. But let's say they all agree that we're not going to charge less than um, a certain premium for any table that we make or any chair that we make. And then one person, one carpenter says, listen, I don't want to charge that much. I want to charge less because there are people who can't afford a premium table and you're charging that much for a dining room table, but there are people who can't pay that. And I'm willing to work for less to help people. So the Me'iri says in such a case, collective bargaining can't work because or can, collective agreement isn't enough because um, you may be helping the workers, but you're hurting the consumer. So the Me'iri says, <speaking in Hebrew> a, a guild, all the carpenters cannot make an agreement about price below right? If you want to talk about collective agreements, so collective, collective agreements have to take into account all relevant parties. 
And that's not just the craftsmen. It's not just the employers. It's not just the employees. It's the consumers. Um, and therefore, the Meiri says, listen, we may recognize under certain circumstances the right to make agreements amongst yourselves, but you've got to figure out who is being affected. You can't make decisions that are going to affect um, other people in society without their uh, input. Um, so that's one limitation that we'll see will, will express itself in PSAC. Um, the Yad Ramah, building on the Talmud's limitation that if there is an important person uh, in society, then people aren't allowed to just make agreements among themselves. The Yad Ramah notes that that person doesn't have to be a Talmud Chacham per se. Um, he says, Adam Dafka, well, sorry, I should re rephrase that. It's not only a scholar, right? The Yad Ramah says, what type of leader is allowed to weigh in and override the, um, the agreements made by all craftsmen in the city? So he says, only someone who has two relevant qualities. He's a scholar and an actual leader. If someone's a leader, but they aren't informed by Torah, or they're a scholar, but they don't have a political role, they're not actually involved with people. So then they have no say. The only type of person who's relevant when we're trying to figure out um, whether a collective negotiation, a collective agreement is legitimate, is someone who's both a leader and a scholar who's informed by practical um, real world involvement in people's lives and um, the Torah's perspective. <clears throat> okay. Um, now I gave you here um, in 14, 15, 16, um, seven, uh, 17, uh, many, many examples of the um, how this ex expresses itself in, in Psaac, um, in, in later halachic literature, and, and some more details. But I want to skip forward um, a little bit um, just to make sure we cover at least uh, the basic ideas. Um, one more Gemara before we move to the modern Psaac um, is one other potential uh, source for the idea of unionization and collective uh, negotiation. And that is this Gemara in, in Yoma. Um, it's a very long Gemara, um, but I'll, I'll, we'll just run through the main point. The Talmud there is talking about a certain um, number of families who were experts in producing um, the showbread uh, in, the, uh, in the temple, um, in making the, um, the ktoret, right, the incense that was burnt in the temple. Um, the Gemara records that the sages taught in Abraita, the craftsmen of the house of Garmu were expert in the preparation of the showbread, they did not want to teach others the secret of its production. The sages dismissed them and sent for and brought craftsmen from Alexandria in Egypt, a large city with many experts. And those craftsmen knew how to bake like the members of the House of Garmu did, but they did not know how to remove the bread from the oven like they did. The shoe bread was baked in a complex shape, and it was difficult to place it in the oven and remove it without baking it. The difference was that these Alexandrians light the fire outside the oven, and bake it outside the oven. And these members of the house of Garmu light the fire inside the oven and bake it inside. In the case of these Alexandrians, their bread becomes moldy over the course of the week. 
In the case of these members of the house of Garmu, the bread does not become moldy. When the sages heard of the matter, the bread of the imported craftsmen was of lower quality than before. They said, whatever the Holy One, blessed be he created, he created in his honor, as it is stated, everyone who is called by my name, I have created for my glory. In deference, to, in deference to God, the sages should diminish their honor for the greater glory of God and let the house of Garmu return to their original station. The sages sent for them to reassume their previous position, and they did not come. They doubled their wages, and they came. Right. So the Talmud tells the story that there was this family who knew how to make the bread for the Mishkan, for the Mikdash, rather, um, for the temple in a unique way. Um, they didn't want to give out the secrets. They didn't want to work for the salary they were working for. Um, so the rabbis tried to uh, to find somebody else to get a new, right, to fire all of them and hire somebody else. Um, and it didn't work because they weren't as good. And their collective agreement to not work until they were paid double um, led to an increase of their salaries. So here you have a, an example uh, in the Binamikdash um, of seemingly collective negotiation. Although, as we'll see, um, this is not so simple because as the, as the Talmud goes on to show, and you know, I'll, I'll sort of summarize it outside, um, the Gemara notes that uh, the reason they did it wasn't just for salaries, there were ritual reasons um, in terms of the honor of the Beit HaMikdash. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated as to whether this is really a, a good model. Um, David Schnall thinks that this is a somewhat good model for unionization um, or and and even for striking, even though it's more of a lockout than a strike. Um, but the Minchat Svi, I gave you in 19, um, thinks that um, this is uh, is not a good example for 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 sort of classic unionization um, and the and striking, um, specifically because it seems like. Um, the only reason that they got their way was because there was no other choice. Um, they didn't really listen to them, right? It wasn't like they negotiated with them um, as a union. It wasn't like the employers, in this case, the rabbis uh, tried to deal with them. Um, the family just decided that they were going to not produce. And uh, when the rabbis had no choice, they came back to them. It's sort of just a, uh, a case of necessity. It's a case where, yes, they sort of unionized and and you know, had a strike, but it doesn't really show that the Talmud approves of it. It just sort of shows that sometimes it happens. Um, okay. So uh, in um, what Brown notes in, in 20 is that um, in the secular Jewish world and in the halachic Jewish world, you end up having what he calls the liberal model, right? Which again, fundamentally believes that employer-employee relationships should be uh, determined by negotiation and therefore favor the idea of unionization um, and basically allowing employees to, um, to gain whatever strength they can in numbers to strengthen their place at the negotiating table. Um, and the other hand, the fascist model, um, which believes that there should always be a third party um, who's more expert um, weighing in on any negotiation between the employer and the employee. Um, so in secular Jewish history, um, he notes that the liberal model was, uh, was adapted by the, um, the Tzionim Klaliim, the general Zionists, um, and the revisionist movement 
um, with Zev Jabotinsky adopted the 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 quote quote unquote fascist model. I mean, I gave you here if you want to uh, to read it. Um, but moving to halacha, what he notes is that there were poskim who basically adopted the um, the liberal model, and poskim who adopted the again. I know it, it it has bad overtones, but I'm using his terminology here, the the fascist model. Um, but to put it differently, there were poskim who looked at our Gemara and said. You see that the Torah believes that workers have the right to agree among themselves to set certain prices, um, and that affects the reality in the employment market. And therefore, unionization is something that halacha should re respect um, and should allow employees to negotiate with their employers collectively without a third party being involved. And they basically emphasize the first part of the Gemara which allows em employees and members of a particular craft to set rules for everybody in that craft. On the other hand, there were postgame who really focused on the second half of the Gemara, the idea that <clears throat> such negotiations aren't legitimate without an outside party, um, which in the fascist model is the government, but in the halachic model, the halachic model is going to be the bait din. Right? It's going to be the court. Um, and Rav Cook and Rav Uziel, um, Brown argues, take the quote-unquote fascist model, but again, it's not quite the same. And therefore, the manifestation of a halacha, he calls the corporative model. Um, and as we'll see, Ramosha Feinstein takes the liberal model. So Rav Cook and Rav Uziel believe that um, unions can only exist with the involvement of the rabbinate. Um, and the rabbinate has to weigh in on the agreements that are made by unions. And Ramosha Feinstein mostly believes that um, they do not. So um, I gave you a few quotes here from, um, from Ramuziel, but I, I wanna just sort of read some of the key lines. Um, what you have here, I gave you the entire tshuva in Hebrew by Ravuziel. So if you want to look at it um, inside, you can, but we'll read just the uh, the key paragraph from, from Brown in his translation of Ravuziel. Um, so Ravuziel says, in my hum humble opinion, it appears, um, you know, I'm going to skip the striking. I'm going to come back to the striking. Um, here. The rationale for this law um, is that no trade organization can be objective in its decisions, but only subjective. And their own self-interest blinds them from seeing the employer's point of view. Moreover, the existence of one organization leads to the establishment of another to counter it. And they both do not limit themselves to their direct interests. And so the constant clashing between the two sides, the workers and the employers never stops and is followed by blind resistance and constant mutual hostility. So Ravuziel says, listen, I recognize the ability of workers to negotiate and to collectively negotiate, but it can't be that halacha re re respects their right to negotiate and allow that to be the only standard by which they negotiate with their employer for the very simple reason that he doesn't believe that the employer understands the employee or that the employee cares to understand the employer. And therefore, you need a third party. So following the quote-unquote 
the fascist or corporative model, focusing on the second half of the Gemara, which finds an important role for the Adam Chashuv, the important person in the negotiations. He, on the one hand, respects the ability to unionize, but only if decisions are made with a Beit Din. And therefore, he writes, to, you should establish a distinguished court, a Beit Din, assembled of members fluent in Torah law and academics proficient in the field of economics and societal market conditions. So they jointly enact a detailed labor legislation and afterwards appoint permanent judges to adjudicate on the basis of this legislation all the conflicts that occur between the workers concerning the proper division of fair labor amongst themselves and settle disputes between the workers and employees concerning their mutual relationships, right? So Uziel and Cook as well believe that yes, workers are allowed to unionize. Yes, they can like collectively negotiate, but there always needs to be an outsider, a Talmud Chacham, a Beitin, experts that are involved as a mediator between the employer and the employee. And if we have to sort of reduce it to its most simplest um, form, they, so to speak, preference the second half of the Gemara, which gives a central role to the Adam Chashuv, to the important person um, in the negotiation. At the other extreme, you have Ramosha Feinstein, <clears throat> who, while he does somewhat involve the, the Beidin, um, <clears throat> Um, does seem to recognize not only the right of workers to unionize, but their right fundamentally to, uh, to negotiate with the employer of their own accord. And therefore, in the key lines here on page 12, concerning the associations of workers called unions, which make regulations, determine set wages, prevent employees from firing them, and help each other through strikes and similar means for their benefit, I do not see any shade of prohibition on the contrary, we see moreover that they are allowed even to make terms contrary to the set halachic law as in Baba Batra 8. According to this source, they are allowed to impose sanctions for enforcing their terms and even cause damage to a person who violates them, such as tear his animal skins. And if so, in the cities of this country, since no stage is appointed for such matters, it is tantamount to the situation of having no distinguished man available. In such a situation, the law posits the terms and regulations that the residents enacted remain in force, and all the more so in our country, where they have permission from the government to enact such regulations. So if we pause here and summarize, we see in the Gemara and Baba Batra, on the one hand, workers can clearly jointly negotiate. On the other hand, there seems to be some role for an outside party um, an expert, a Talmud Chacham, a scholar, to weigh in on whether the negotiation um, is in the proper spirit of Torah law. Um, some poskim give emphasis to the first half and simply say, look, the Talmud recognizes the ability of workers to jointly make agreements that will affect other people. And from here, they derive that halacha recognizes the ability to unionize, um, and they downplay the importance um, of the, the Adam Chashuv, or they just say that you don't have to have it. In most places, you don't have it. And therefore, in most places, um, employees have the right to use unionization to strengthen their position and negotiate directly with the employee employer. And if that means um, setting certain rules in the workplace, um, certain salaries, hours of work, safety conditions, that is their right, and they can negotiate as they see fit. 
And that's really the model adopted by Ramosha. On the others, on the other hand, uh, Ravuziel, Rav Kok, focusing on the second half of the Gemara, the idea that yes, negotiation is legitimate, but there should be an outsider who weighs in and says, this is fair for the employer and the employee, that it's fair for society. It follows in the spirit of Torah law. Um, they focus on the importance of Adam Chashuv and therefore set up a uh, what he calls a corporative model uh, or parallel to the fascist model um, where you believe that an outside party has to enter into the negotiations with um, employers and employees to make sure that everyone is heard. <clears throat> and that, again, he ascribes to Ravuziel and Rufkak. Okay? So that is sort of the first half uh, here of the issue. Um, and those are the two main models where, again, both models recognize the ability of employees, if they see fit, to unionize. Um, on the other hand, um, they limit it um, or don't limit it based on outside help, um, based on whether they emphasize the first half of the sugya or the second half of the sugya. Uh, and we saw certain positions in the Rishonim that already sort of point in these directions with the Ad Rama limiting um, what types of leaders can be involved, which of course goes more in the direction of Ramosha, where it's only very specific cases where an outside party should get involved. Um, or people like the Meiri who say, no, 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 if anybody is affected in society besides for the employer and the employer, the employee and the employer, uh, someone has to weigh in um, to make sure that everything is being done fairly. Um, so Ilana asks in the, in the, um, in the chat here, um, are the positions of Rav Kook and Ruziel and Rav Moshe based on culture or location? So um, Brown argues that yes. Um, Brown argues that Rav Moshe, um, and you can go to the article, it's available online, um, consistently throughout his psakim, um, believes that um, American democracy um, and its emphasis on the rights of the individuals um, and not imposing the, um, the position of the government um, and the government sort of giving space to people is a positive. Uh, and therefore, he argues that Ramosha's um, position is a function of his deep-seated belief um, um, his deep-seated belief that um, the rights of individuals without government involvement, um, the rights of democracy, of the individuals to decide is halakhically valuable. Uh, and yes, right, this is part of his appreciation of the reality in America. Um, and Ravuzi al Rufkuk, he argues, yeah, it's, um, right, they're living in, uh, in Israel, which has a bit at that time of a more socialist uh, feel, not fully communist, but definitely more socialist. Uh, and the idea that the government should be involved. Um, and yes, he does argue that um, the reality that they're living in affects the models that they uh, they emphasize. Um, take, you know, take it or leave it. I think there's something there. He really develops the idea uh, quite strongly in, in all of their writings. Um, there's another question. Are we doing class on the 13th because of Purim being on the 16th? Is there a change in schedule? I, Eva can answer that, I guess, at the end. In terms of scheduling, I'm, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but well, let's sorry, let's save that. Oh, okay. there, in in the in the chat, there's something about the scheduling of the class, but we'll do that. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, we'll do that at the end. Uh, okay, um, okay. So so as to Ilana's question, yes, um, Brown really develops this, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, okay. Um, any other questions so far? Um, and what we've seen, comments, thoughts. 
or as one of my uh, madrichim used to say, jokes, anything, anything you want to add that's, uh, that's relevant at this point? Um, or should we quickly sort of overview uh, striking? Um, okay, so I'll move quickly to striking. So <clears throat> again, we've seen two different models for um, if and how unions um, can and should find their place in a halachic society. Um, that really just speaks to the general idea of joint negotiation. But um, the specific question of whether once you have uh, employees unionized, should they um, try to get their way by striking? Uh, this was a much more complicated question um, in halacha. Um, and that at two levels. Um, one was the question of um, whether striking in general is a problem because it's a breach of contract. Um, and the second is, <clears throat> is, even if striking in theory is legitimate, um, is striking legitimate for professions where there is a cost to society if all the members of a particular profession stop working? Um, and the classic examples that were discussed by modern postgame were doctors and uh, and educators, um, because of obviously by doctors the importance of uh, of human life, um, and educators because of the importance of Talmud Torah and the idea that at least kids uh, should never be deprived of their right to uh, to learn Torah. Um, okay, so <coughs> so here we will um, we will. Uh, have to <coughs> sort of summarize this, um, but um, the okay, the Gemara in Baba Batra brings a um, a discussion specifically of um, of uh, competition, right? Of the legitimacy of competition. So I'm not going to get into the whole discussion there, but the Gemara there um, suggests that um, people have the right to close down competition, uh, at least from outsiders. Now, how outsiders are defined is very complicated, but in the classic case, if two people live in the same alleyway, I'm sorry, if someone lives in an alleyway, he is a fish merchant, uh, and someone comes from the next door, uh, an, a neighboring city, and wants to set up a, um, right, a fish store, uh, you can stop him. Um, right, you can stop him. Um, now, based on that, the Schnall and, uh, and, and the Tzitzelieser before him um, um, point to this idea that uh, you're allowed to stop people from working if that's going to harm your position uh, in the market. And therefore, the Tzitzelieser suggests, based on this, and, and Schnall has um, developed this um, in his book, that since you see that you can close down competition, uh, if you can explain why you have a right to be here and the other person doesn't, um, that may be proof that striking is legitimate uh, and it's illegitimate to, to strike break, um, right? To stop people from striking by bringing in outsiders um, because that might be a violation of competition laws. Because if you have a union and they are the workers in your factory, 
Um, and the way that you are going to uh, get around listening to them is by bringing in outside workers. Um, so that might be an unfair ca competition um, and that can be prohibited. Um, so the Tzitzeliezer for one seems to support the notion of striking um, and actually take this as a, as a proof that not only can workers use striking um, as a tool in their toolbox, the employer is not allowed to, uh, to strike break by bringing in outside workers. Um, however, um, most postgame really didn't love striking. Um, and the reason really was um, because they saw this in many ways as uh, a breach of contract on the one hand. Um, and, on the, and the second point was that they, they felt that it, um, it caused unfair loss to the employer. So um, Ravuziel, for example, um, who, as we saw already, was in favor of the corporative model, right? The idea that employers and employees need an outsider <coughs> uh, to be involved. Um, also, not surprisingly, didn't like striking, right? He thought that striking was really problematic because striking uh, for him um, was exactly why he didn't believe that you could have straight employer-employee negotiations without an educated outsider. Because striking um, was basically a show of force um, unmediated by an, by an objective outsider, by the employees. And since he didn't think that was okay in the original negotiating, um, he also didn't think it was legitimate in terms of, of striking. Um, not surprisingly, Ramosha Feinstein, um, who thought that negotiations could be carried out directly by the employers and the employees, uh, was also more open to the idea of striking uh, as a legitimate tool. Um, because if you think that at the end of the day, halacha recognizes the rights of employers and employees to negotiate it unhindered by outside parties, uh, so then um, striking should be a tool in their toolbox. Um, now, um, just to throw out in the next few minutes, in the next minute, and then I'll take questions. Um, as I said, even Postkim, who, let's say, um, are okay in theory with striking, either like the Tzitzeliezer because they think that, um, you know, striking, um, you know, is fair and strike breaking is a unfair violation of competition law, um, or because like Reb Moshe, they believe that negotiations should happen between the employer and the employee and whatever tools they can use they, they have at their disposal, they're allowed to use. Um, even such postgame um, weren't thrilled or thought it was outright forbidden uh, when it came to professions where a mitzvah was involved um, because then there's a ritual side, right? You're not just hurting the employer, but in the case of doctors, you are, um, you're hurting the patients. And in the case of, <clears throat> of, uh, of, educators or rabbis, you're hurting uh, the students. So uh, here, just to, you know, I'm just going to sort of describe what I have here. Um, Rav Aaron Cutler uh, in, a, in a tshuva um, in Mishnah Rabbi Aaron, Binyan Shvita B'Yeshiva, um, rules that educators are not allowed um, to, uh, to strike because, as you see sort of here in the middle, um, there are... Uh, there are uh, spiritual uh, spiritual costs to it. Um, Rav Moshe 
again, Ramosha doesn't love it, especially in the context of educators, but um, <clears throat> as a last resort, uh, resort um, even by educators, he does seem to think that it's a possibility, though he obviously goes out of his way um, to, uh, to try to avoid it. Um, and therefore he says uh, here all the way at the end again, and this follows Ramosha's model that fundamentally he thinks negotiating um, and any tools that the employees have they're allowed to use. Again, when it comes to Torah, because you're denying students their, uh, their right to learn, um, he doesn't love it. He doesn't rule it out entirely. Um, he says at the very end of his tshuva here, he says, look, I don't love it, but in very rare circumstances, if the bosses, the heads of the yeshiva, don't care about their teachers at all, the king right? And right, it, it's clear that it's fair, whatever. And you know that it's going to help to strike. So if you push me against the wall, Ramosha says, if the only way for the rabbis, the teachers to get um, proper salary in the yeshiva is to strike, he's even willing to tolerate it again because of the ritual pressure um, and the denial of education to the kids. He doesn't love it, but he does think that it is, if push comes to shove, um, plausible. Um. And you, as you can see here, um, the Minchat Shlomo, Shlomo Zalman Orbach weighed in on this. Um, and I gave you here, I'm just sort of running through it. The Nishman Avram here summarizes um, the, the question by doctors, um, where uh, he notes that most postkin were really opposed to doctor striking, um, especially if it's going to hurt potential patients. And that's the position of, of um, Rivitzok Weiss, Shlomo Zalman Orbach. Um, uh, and Encyclopedia Talmudid here summarizes it as, as well um, and notes that um, most postkim really don't like doctor strikes. Now, obviously, you've got to ask the question, but what if, you know, the hospital takes advantage of that, um, you know, takes advantage of the fact that the doctors aren't going to let the patients uh, die um, and doesn't treat them fairly? What do you do? So that's really a complicated um, question. And as you can see, I gave you here about 10 pages worth of true voters, you can see that some posts can really do try um, to negotiate it. But again, when it's going to hurt potential patients or it's going to hurt children who are not going to learn, postgame are really, really hesitant. Even those, uh, Nishman Avram, sorry, is uh, Rav Avram Sofer Avram. Uh, he's both a doctor um, and a rabbi, and he's written one of the, the authoritative works on, on um, halachic medical ethics. Um, and he really summarizes sort of the modern um, position. Okay, because we're at nine o'clock in a minute. So just to summarize, um, the first half of this year, we dealt with unions. Um, and we noted that um, in the sense that the Talmud recognizes the ability of members of a guild of a craft to collectively negotiate and make deals, everyone agrees that some level of unionization is clearly respected by halacha. The main argument is how much um, do you emphasize the first half of the sugya? Uh, the first half of the topic, where it seems to be that most decisions are made by the employees and the employers without outside help, which would um, open the door to basically uh, straight employee-employer negotiations without outside participation, which is what Ramosha 
um, focuses on? And how much do you go to the second half and set up a corporative model like Ravuziel and Rufkuk and believe that, yes, employees can uh, negotiate, but there should be an outsider um, for them, a court, um, a rabbinical court that weighs in and says, um, this is fair from the perspective of the employee and the employer. Um, so that was the first half of this year. Um, and the second half, we, we um, quickly went through the question of whether uh, when you have a union, if they can use the model of striking. Um, on the one hand, you have the Tzitzeliezer, um, who believes that they can strike and maybe strike breaking is even forbidden because it's a type of forbidden um, competition. Uh, Ramosha, following in his belief in the liberal model, uh, does believe that any tool that employees have that can help them in their negotiations is fundamentally uh, legitimate. Um, on the other hand, Postkim like Ruziel, who believed that you always need an outside party uh, to be involved to see whether things are fair, they really oppose strikes because they see it as a breach of contract and as a way of causing a loss unfairly to the employer. And then the last thing we noted is that when there are mitzvot involved, um, namely medicine, where you have an obligation to take care of the patients, uh, and Torah education, where you have an obligation to the students, um, there, even postkim are more open to the possibility of striking, um, really don't love it. Um, however, as Ramosha notes in the context of education, um, even there, um, they might not rule out striking entirely. They might just say that when there is a mitzvah um, involved, um, whether it be refua, whether it be medicine uh, or education, um, striking really, really has to be a last resort. So um, again, you have the, 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 the authorities who don't like striking at all, uh, those who uh, accept it as tolerable, and those who say that it's either forbidden or at least um, a really, really last resort when you work for a profession where failing to work isn't just a monetary question uh, between the employer and the employer, but is also um, affecting in a, in a spiritually and physically important way um, third parties like patients um, or the poor children who have no one to teach them uh, Torah. Okay, um, we're two minutes over time, but any questions, um, let's take them now. But I think before we take questions, um, Evie, do you want to just announce the schedule since there were a few questions on it? And then we'll, yes. um, and then we'll, <laughs> and then we'll take questions on the class itself. Yes, that sounds wonderful. So yeah, I just wanted to uh, clarify. So um, we, uh, we're we ending uh, today's class uh, shortly. Uh, next week, we are not going to uh, see each other for this class. Uh, so in other words, there is no class on uh, March 16th. I hope all of you get to celebrate Purim. And uh, we, we don't have a makeup uh, time that week. There's just no class next week. And then the following week, we will reconvene on um, March uh, 23rd. So the then, next class good. after today's class is March 23rd. Just want to make so there sure. Are three more weeks, right? 23rd, 30th, 6th. That's right. Uh, let me double check that I said that I said everything correctly. Uh, so two right. two weeks from today uh, is the next class. Right, and then and then there'll be two three more three. There are three oh, more I weeks. see. Yeah, 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 I apologize. Let me double check. So there is class on March 23rd. There is class on Mar March uh, 30th. Uh, and there's class on uh, April 6th. So yeah, that's correct. <clears throat> and then April 6th will be the last one. So three more classes after today, but we're skipping next week. Does anyone have any questions about that? Just to make sure we're, we're clarifying it. We really want everyone to be able to join us. So, okay. 
seems like we're good. So it looks like there's questions, uh, more material questions in the chat. So would you like me to read them to you, Rabbi Ziering? Um, so I, no, I, I see it. Um, okay. okay, perfect. So Diane asks, is there a difference between um, secular teachers and religious teachers? So um, so you might think that there is. Um, on If you think, right, as we've seen, that the reason that um, teachers have less rights to strike um, is because they're teaching Torah, and therefore you're harming these students. So you might have, uh, you know, in a sort of halachically recognized way, so you might have thought that uh, halachic Torah educators have less rights to strike, but secular educators uh, have more rights. Um, and that might be true according to some authorities, though I pulled up here that Ravarn Cutler um, actually raises this possibility and rejects it. Um, and he writes here, um, right? You might have thought that there's a difference between Torah educators and secular educators. Right? Because all the Torah considerations don't apply to secular teachers. But then he says, no, and this is sort of surprising coming from the, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, how much significance he gives to the secular education, but he does. Um, and he says, even your secular education is spiritual. And therefore, A, it's spiritual, and B, there is something lost. There's a real, there's still victims here, right? The, the students are still unwitting victims. Um, they're third parties. And therefore, the same restrictions um, for that he puts on striking for Torah educators, uh, he actually applies to secular educators as well. Um, though um, not all authority seems to share his conviction um, because it could be something that's much more local to Torah. Um, but for um, Ravarn Cutler, it seems to be a combination of the recognition that secular education also has spiritual value uh, and the recognition that the limitation on striking for teachers isn't just about Torah, but it's about the fact that students are the unwitting uh, victims, um, you know, sort of they're the collateral damage in in this, and that's not fair to them. Um, you know, I, you know, we saw, you know, this was a lot of what people were complaining about in Israel, where, um, you know, there was a lot of fighting between the teachers union and the Ministry of Education over, um, over Corona restrictions. Um, and then um, how much of the, um, the summer, um, you know, how much after we missed weeks of school two years ago, uh, how much of that could be made up in the summer, um, you know, and how much vacation you could take away from the teachers, um, right? There was a lot of discussion of how, um, you know, not the students just didn't get a voice, right? The Department of Education had its voice, um, the, the teachers union had their voice, and the parents and students um, had no voice, and therefore students just lost um, weeks of school, months of school, um, and the only thing being discussed was, um, you know, the contracts of teachers uh, and the like, um, and obviously safety, but, you know, by the time we were making up with vacation, it was more about, can you force teachers to work on their vacation, or what should have there been their vacation, um, and there, wa there wasn't enough discussion about the, the students. Um, whatever agreement you would have come to, that just sort of wasn't um, in the picture in the same way. Um, so, so to Diane's question, Ravarn Cutler at least thinks because of the spiritual value of, uh, of secular education and the collateral damage on students, um, the same limitations and striking will, will apply to them, uh, even though he recognizes that one could have gone in a different uh, direction. Um, 
Um, I, I'm not sure I clarified this enough before, but Ilana had asked in the previous question, who is the Nishmat Avraham? Uh, so again, as I mentioned briefly, Nishman Avram, um, there are two basically uh, go-to works on halachic medical ethics. Uh, one is um, the, the uh, Encyclopedia of Halachic Medical Ethics by um, Rabbi Dr. Avram Steinberg, um, published both in English and in Hebrew. Um, and the other is the Nishman Avram, um, written by Avram, by Avram Sofer Avram. Um, both Dr. Steinberg and um, both both are rabbis doctor, um, and both are writing both from the medical perspective and from the halachic perspective. Um, and in the sheets that I gave you, um, I gave you the treatment from both of them, both from the Nishman Avram and from the Encyclopedia of Halachic Medical Ethics, the Hebrew version, um, and their, their approach to striking uh, in the medical context, where they both summarize it from that sort of insider's um, perspective. Um, okay, those are the two questions I had here in the chat. Uh, any other questions by chat? Uh, Deborah, I see you raising your hand. Okay. Yeah, I also put my question in the chat, but I'm happy to say oh. it out loud. Did I, did um, I miss it? It was sent directly yeah. to me. Oh, okay. oh so I'm didn't so sorry. I, I clicked no, on okay. I was just about to raise I'm it. Sorry. Would you like? Yeah, you can just no, go I ahead. got it. I got it. So um, I was asking, what about other employers that could be said to be facilitating mitzvot? like um, people who provide food for Shabbat, clothing for Yom Tov, especially in a small town where there might only be one provider of whatever it is. Right, so, so the, the major discussion is, in, <clears throat> um, is by educators and by doctors, but there is some discussion of exactly that case um, in terms of, um, yeah, forcing people to work. Um, now this is gonna touch on what we see in two weeks, which is, um, you know, it, it's complicated a little bit also by the fact that, you know, people are allowed to quit. Um, but as we'll see, um, in that context, there is a lot of discussion. But what if you are the only, uh, yeah, the only grocery in the, you know, in the in the town? And if you quit, um, no one's going to have food, no one's going to have clothes for Shabbat, for Yom Tov, or in general. Um, so yeah, the primary discussion halacha is doctors and educators, but but there are smaller discussions um, about other mitzvot or other essential uh, essential workers. Um, and and yeah, you know, in, in the COVID discussions, um, it became so clear that, you know, limiting our, you know, limiting our discussion of essential workers to doctors um, misses the point, right? Because the people who work in groceries, the people who work, right, who deliver food, um, the people who work in, in, you know, sort of the related fields to, um, <clears throat> to <clears throat> to medicine and even you know whatever sanitation workers and the like we you know there was a, a stronger recognition that um, other things are essential and and as it were mitzvah um, professions so yeah I think um, there is less discussion in halacha about it there's a little bit um, especially in the quitting discussions um, but I think that any responsible posig, um and you know I haven't seen it but but um, probably some of the COVID shuvot out there. And, you know, as I get a chance to sort of read through everything that was there, probably some of the COVID shuvot uh, dealt with that question because you were seeing, you know, strikes or, or mass quitting of, um, you know, of, of people who work in grocery stores, sanitation workers, um, you know, and other essential workers. Um, but, but I guess, but conceptually, definitely, uh, there should be overlapping um, between them. Um, if I find specific discussions, you know, I'll, I'll take a look back at 
I haven't read the whole book, but there was that book that came out at the beginning of last year, Haviani Chadarav, which is a collection of about 500 pages, pages of, uh, of response that came out about COVID. I, there, there's got to be something there on, um, on some related thing. If I, if I see something, I'll, I'll, send it, I'll, I'll send it directly to you um, when, when I find it. Um, and it was great. It was great to see Rabbi Clapper yesterday. He came by for a few hours. It was very nice. Um, I heard you said your kids are adorable. Thank you. I, I, I think so. But, uh, um, um, yeah. And, and, you know, again, maybe in quitting, we'll see a little bit, but, but if I see explicit Shuvot on it, I will, I will send it along, but I don't think it's in the sources that I, uh, I put here, which, you know, were as it was 23 page, pages long. And, you know, I had no hope of getting through everything, but, um, but I will, uh, but I will try to find, find something explicit on it. Um, if I can, um, okay. Um, if that's it, then we still have a few minutes, but if anyone else has questions, now's the time. Otherwise, as usual, you can email me. Um, and if not, before everyone runs away, Purim Sameach to everyone. Um, next week, enjoy enjoy Purim. Um, I will. Uh, I, I hope I'll be enjoying Purim. And then we'll meet in uh, in two weeks. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Evie. Purim Sameach. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we, um, I, I just wanted to remind everyone, so uh, this class will uh, next meet for the fourth part on March 23rd. Uh, we have a standalone class tomorrow, Thursday, on uh, Jewish Ukraine through the eyes and words of uh, Shalom Alechem. This class will uh, take place tomorrow at 1 p.m., so we hope to see you there. Um, we also have an additional uh, live class tomorrow evening at 8 p.m., which will be the second class, I believe, in the series, uh, The Invention of the Seven-Day seven day, uh, Week with uh, Dr. Ezra uh, Zuckerman-Sivan. Uh, as always, you can find out all the information about classes uh, uh, and general offerings, registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes. You can also watch all of the classes live at www.dresha.org slash live. Thank you again, Rabbi Zering. I'm looking forward to seeing you in two weeks. And thanks again to everyone who joined us today. Uh, we love to see all of you here at Dresha. Have a Thank happy Thank you so form. much. Have a Aksamer. good day. Aksamer. Aksamer.